Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location, not necessarily one anywhere near Dick Cheney's proverbial undisclosed location. Mine is actually somewhere in the woods of western Wisconsin, in the beautiful Wisconsin River country. And from this undisclosed location, I reach out looking for honest voices of truth. Uh, usually very smart people who maybe are a little too smart for the mainstream, and we hash out which alternative facts are actually true, uh, and of course which interpretations and theories uh, about what's going on in the world are more likely to be true than others. And I suppose this kind of discussion would actually be very useful to folks with money trying to make more money, because, you know, I guess they have to know what's really going on as opposed to what the masses think is going on based on the propaganda in the media in order to invest in the right sorts of things like death, destruction, and so on, uh, and make uh, fortunes. But most of my listeners are more interested just in truth for its own sake, and so am I. And my guest in this hour, A.K. Dudney is a master of a couple of methodologies for getting at truth, uh, the scientific method and, of course, mathematics. He is a polymath, science math whiz from the University of Western Ontario. He replaced Martin Gardner at Scientific American, and uh, he has a long list of accomplishments, including proving that cell phone calls could not have been made from allegedly hijacked airliners on 9-11, as we were told. So he's a great guy to bring on on the occasion of the 21st anniversary of 9-11. So, hey, let's welcome A.K. Dudney. How are you? Assalamu alaikum, Khalil. Alhamdulillah, I'm doing really well, thank you. <clears throat> I just got over a coffee accident in my kitchen. I forgot to put the water into the um, into the boiler. So Sounds like a meltdown situation, China syndrome. It was a meltdown situation, but I think I have it under control now, and I'm ready to hold forth um, with um, incredible wisdom. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure your coffee machine isn't in quite as dangerous condition as that uh, nuclear reactor in Ukraine over near Chernobyl that the Russians are guarding and uh, supposedly shelling at the same time, if you believe our mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah, if that nuclear reactor in the same shape as my coffee maker it would be toast. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I will pray that the reactor does better than your coffee maker. And I hope they'll yes, remember really. to keep plenty of coffee in their reactor when they turn it on. So, uh, <laughs> so, 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 Key, uh, where do we start here? First, I, you know, the big general question that I'm asking in a live event tomorrow here in Wisconsin, specifically at the McFarland Public Library in McFarland, Wisconsin, which is on the Chicago side of Madison, Wisconsin. So people can drive up to Chicago from Chicago for this only a couple hours. 
and we are going to be discussing which conspiracy theories are true and how do we know with Ron Unz. Now, Ron Unz was a very mainstream kind of guy, and he still sort of yeah. is by temperament, but he just start, he's too smart to not notice certain things, and he started waking up right. to various issues, and now he's just put out six new books on a long list of subjects, including 9-11, JFK, uh, the World War II, and uh, up to the recent questions about COVID origins, which he has made a really good case, came out of a U.S. bioattack on China and Iran. So Ron is going to be talking about his books and how he discovered all of these so-called you know, true conspiracy theories, and then how, how do we know which ones are true in, a, in the firehose environment that we're in now. And so you're, you're another uh, very smart guy who's awakened to this stuff. Um, how did you awaken to it, and, and how do we know which of these alternative facts and interpretations are true? Now, right, by the way, Mr. Unz is my Mr. Productive, if you want my opinion. The guy is amazing at the, the number of works he's been turning out and with the kind of quality that he, he has. Anyway, um, how did I get onto this? Well, being a Muslim, like you, um, for many years, actually, since um, almost 50 years now, I, I thought it was very strange that a bunch of... Muslim extremists would hijack four airliners and uh, commit suicide in the process of crashing them into buildings. I didn't think, um, I thought all forms of suicide were, were forbidden. In fact, I checked it out and I found that even military suicide, you know, deliberately going in to kill yourself is just as bad as killing yourself all alone. So anyway, uh, if that's the case, and if these guys are so bright and so onto Islam and so knowledgeable, how would they go ahead and kill themselves knowing that they would be soon encountering the 72 Virgins dating service? <laughs> or thought they were. <laughs> anyway, um, the uh, it, it got me suspicious to the point where I thought, well, you know, this must be something wrong with this. So I thought about the cell phones, and I remembered uh, uh, some studies I did many years ago on radio physics and uh, the strength of signals and uh, frequencies and all of that. And um, doing a little digging on uh, cell phones, I found out that the cell phone, the typical cell phone has a uh, transmission wattage of about 0.2 watts. Whereas the uh, antenna system in a modern passenger aircraft has somewhere between 30 and 50 watts just to get as far as the ground, right? <clears throat> so I thought that's very odd. And then, and then we're told by the media that we're asked to turn off our cell phones when we fly. And I did a lot of flying during the 1990s. And I noticed that every time we boarded an aircraft, we were soon told to turn off all our electronic devices, including the cell phones. Um, because, why? Because it might upset the delicate navigational instruments in the forward nose of the aircraft. Wow, I thought that's uh, pretty amazing. I didn't realize the, the, the equipment there was so sensitive. And then I found out later on that all of that equipment, that navigational equipment, that delicate navigational equipment, was enclosed in what is called a Faraday cage. That's a, um, a, well, it's basically just a cage that screens out all stray radioactive, um, so excuse me, radio waves from entering uh, the interior, which, of course, protects the delicate navigational instruments. So I thought, well, why all this fuss about cell phones if 
these the uh, instruments are already already protected <clears throat> from stray radiation. Um, and then I realized that the cell phone is even at the back of the cabin. It was expected to knock out these uh, delicate instruments. So, um, frankly, uh, once I learned about the Faraday case, I simply didn't believe that any longer, and I thought there must be something else going on. And, uh, of course, then I, it began to slowly dawn on me that, in fact, um, the calls must have been faked because they couldn't possibly have been made to the ground with a, with a uh, transmission power that weak. Um, but, but wait a minute, if, if, if the uh, delicate equipment in the aircraft were threatened by cell phones, they could have just hijacked the aircraft by break, whipping out their cell phones and saying, I'm going to turn this on and, and make a phone call and, and destroy the plane unless you give me the controls right now. Yes, that takes considerable amount of cool to make a cell phone call from a hijacked aircraft <laughs> without getting a box cutter through your ear. <laughs> right, right. So, 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 so you looked into this. Pardon me. I'm sorry. So, so you looked into this question of of the uh, oh, possibility yeah, yeah. of cell phone transmissions uh, getting getting to Earth from a plane. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. And then I began to get suspicious. And when I get suspicious, watch out, because I just thought, you know what, this whole thing could be just fake. And then I realized that the announcement made on the aircraft for about 10 years prior to 2001 well, had the purpose of making sure that passengers did not try to communicate with their cell phones with the ground. Right? It, it, you can't use it. You might bring down the aircraft with a, with a stray call. You certainly wouldn't make a business call or any other kind of call while the aircraft was in flight. Ergo, you would never quite fully grasp the fact that your cell phone could not possibly work at that altitude. In fact, in a modern aircraft, if you take off within about oh, less than a minute of takeoff, uh, look at your cell phone, turn it on and look at it. You'll see that service is dropped in about a minute after takeoff. So how is it going to work up there? It ain't. So anyway, uh, we decided to do a little experiment, so we took up a couple of aircraft. Not at the same time, but in sequence. First, a Diamond Katana, which is a sport model, made right here in London. And the other was a Cessna 127. In both cases, I went up with a cell phone expert equipped with uh, several cell phones of different kinds and makes. And we logged all the times the pilot was told to make ascending circles, like a spiral, going up and up and up. And at um, various so many thousand feet, uh, there'd be no more signal. And the signals begin to cut off um, around 3,000, 2,000 feet, actually. 3,000 feet. Um, and then even then, the ones that were on were only on for about a second, and then they dropped. So effectively, you had no communication above 3,000 max. And you still got little bits of communication, just a beep kind of noise, um, up to 5,000 feet. But after that, it was toast, nothing. So the official story. We did it twice, and then we published the results in a, in a little uh, website called uh, Physics 911. Uh, and um, before I knew it, I was I had I was gotten in touch with by a Japanese broadcasting company. I don't know if you've heard of Asahi, which is the uh, sort of the CBC of Canada or the ABC of the U.S. It's a major network, and they sent me a 
message saying that they would like to send a film crew over to film this experiment. And I thought, wow, this is this is getting interesting. So, yes, they came over about two weeks later, film crew and all. There was a cameraman, a soundman, uh, and an interviewer and a manager. <clears throat> they came over, and uh, I showed them the uh, the phone that we would be receiving all our calls on. Uh, introduced them to my nephew, who was going to log those calls, and then um, took them out to the airport, showed them the aircraft, and they rented not a sport plane, not a uh, Cessna 127, but a Beechcraft Bonanza. It's a, oh, I think it's, no, no, Beechcraft Apache, sorry, a twin-engine aircraft. And um, with, you know, twice or three times the mass of a Cessna, so it would have a greater attenuation effect also on the uh, signals that were passing through the cabin. In fact, um, the bigger the mass of the aircraft, the greater the attenuation. So a modern passenger aircraft would would have a much higher blocking uh, level than even this aircraft that the Asahi people rented in order to repeat the experiment. So up we went, um, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, up to about 10,000 feet, where, of course, we had zero signals at all. And um, actually, that... Um, that whole video is available. I've got it on my computer, and it's in various places. But if you like, at the end of this session, um, I can give you or send you the uh, the link for that, and you can maybe add that on later on. Would that be possible? Absolutely. Please do send me that link. Yeah, I'll send you the link because it's the first half of the of the broadcast shows the people discussing 9-11 in general, and then the second half begins with one of them saying, we heard a rumor that a professor Drudney was doing cell phone experiments in Canada, so now we off we go to Canada. And uh, they showed the tape of the aircraft taking off, the pilots uh, flying the plane, the cell phone expert, um, you know, uh, testing, the, testing the various cell phones uh, on board. And... Um, so that was essentially what the video was all about. And then they had a discussion about how to fake voices, which was very interesting, um, because they did an actual demonstration there. One of their techies had a device which would take a recording from one of the studio people, one of the presenters, and rejig re it so that it said, Darling, I know we haven't always gotten along together, but I'm willing to try again. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> In other words, they made that whole sentence out of, out of the fragments of, of words which that same guy had spoken uh, earlier on. Right. Just yeah. a recording of his studio voice. So that was also, I think, added greatly to the show, and I think the show is still worthwhile for people to watch. Yeah, well, I, I, will, anyway, I will definitely link it when you send it. And, and of course, oh, uh, David Ray Griffin, and by the way, David Ray Griffin apparently is in hospice now, and so this will be the last 9-11 anniversary he sees, most likely. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and so yeah. shout out to David, and, and our prayers are with him, uh, and certainly uh, may, may Allah He's welcome like David to the highest the station of paradise. Yeah, really. Yeah, poor David. Yeah. He, well, we'll he, all say prayers for him, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, David uh, Ray Griffin, of course, did offer that. Uh, he Well, he observed that there was technology in 2001 uh, that was capable of basically uh, shape-shifting voices. Uh, that is, a, with the computer technology, you would speak and it would come out sounding exactly like me. 
And of That's course, exactly. you'd have to, you might have to practice a little bit to get it perfect. But so David uh, pointed out that it's not inconceivable that some of these people reported getting these phone calls from their relatives could have been spoofed by that uh, kind of technology. And then, of course, there's, oh, all, yeah. Yeah, there's also the possibility that there was a drill in progress and perhaps even a, a you know kind of terrifying uh, drill with the uh, unwilling participants realizing their lives might have been in danger or realizing they were in, in, a, in a bad situation. Right. And that the drill could have produced uh, some of these phone calls, and and of course, as you know, key today people can make cell phone calls from altitude in mod- in today's commercial aircraft because they have re reconfigured the aircraft. They've protected the Faraday cage, or they've yep. they've built the strong they Faraday cage. They protect their instruments, and then they have an amplifier that uh, actually is designed to take those cell transmissions and uh, and take them to the ground. So that was not yeah, available in 2001. Basically, all they've done is install a radio in between the cell phone transmission and the ground station. So right. it just, well, as you said, basically amplifies it or turns it into an aircraft-type signal, and then it's intercepted by the ground station or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's quite possible now. Yeah, so, that, so you but can do it now, it but you couldn't then, in 2001. It wasn't for quite a while. Right. And, of course, the back-of-the-seat phones were also taken care of by the, our friends at the Asahi Network, who pointed out that you can't use a back-of-the-seat phone without talking to an operator and, uh, and paying, um, paying for the call from your own seat. It gets quite complicated and lengthy, and uh, it kind of made it doubtful that anyone would actually use those phones. Plus, no such recordings were ever made uh, of um, cell phones in use in the aircraft in question, so it was pretty well out of the out of the running. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, I just also um, was going to okay. So that answers your question. How did I get interested? B. What did I do about it? what reflections do I have on the whole matter? And I have a kind of a neat way of summing the whole thing up. Um, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but if you ever took a drama class, you know that one of the first things they taught you about drama was the willing suspension of disbelief. You remember that phrase? Oh, yes, of course. I was a literature major. Oh, well, yes, well... And uh, so many people would remember it because they're basically uh, general arts majors and they would take at least one course in drama. So there they are, willing suspension of disbelief. Now, with 9-11, we have what I think personally is the world's greatest outdoor production, dramatic production ever. And I think maybe you'll agree. (laughs) Well, it depends what you mean by great. (laughs) But yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> oh, no, almost, almost admirable when you look at all the details that had to be covered just from a purely technical point of view. Of course, uh, from a humanistic point of view, it's, it's, uh, it's the worst sort of evil. But So here we have an outdoor production with great production values, so to speak. A lot of work gone into it. Um, and it's a production that... We sit watching it stunned on our television, and the audience is of two parts. The first part of the audience is the ones who have not only willingly, but almost automatically suspended their disbelief because the whole thing is so believable. And the other part of the audience is the true audience, who are sitting back in their 
balcony seats, looking at the whole thing going on and shaking their heads and said, Jesus Christ, how can anyone be so stupid? We have 100,000 or 100 million people uh, playing bit parts without even realizing it. You know what I mean? So, so it's one of those audience participation plays where the, you know, the, the, the actors yes, go through right. the audience and they get the audience to say something or participate. That only they don't, the audience doesn't realize that it is that kind of thing. And they think of themselves as reacting naturally. But in fact, they're one of the players. They're part of the play. And, and you know, so, I, I, I think it's important to add that this event breaks down the boundary between reality and fiction. And that that's part of how it works. That is, well, that, absolutely. Yeah, they deliberately. It is so believable, right? Well, they made they on made, the face of it. Well, it's both believable and seemingly fictional, like a Hollywood disaster movie. And when people first saw the reports and the images, they didn't know whether yeah. this was a, a, a movie, uh, like the so many you know thrillers that they've seen, such as yeah. the Lone Gunman episode that had exactly the same plot, which is uh, remotely hijacked airliners are flown into the trade towers, and that that aired just like six months before the actual event. So they don't know if it's a wow. movie or if it's real, and they're being harangued and told that it's real, a little bit like uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast uh, back yeah. in 1939. And they uh, are stuck between sort of the reality mode and the fiction mode. And when people are stuck, unable to frame the situation they're in, they enter this state uh, of extreme suggestibility. This is explained by Douglas Rushkoff in his book Coercion. And then they are susceptible to being regressed to a childlike state where they will just believe whatever the parental authority figure tells them. And I think that's exactly what happened on 9-11. And that's called mass psychosis, too, isn't it? Or is that different? Uh, well, you know, it's a, it's mass hypnosis in that the, the people uh, are put into this state of losing uh, the frame of reality, their normal frame of reality, and then being su- suggestible to a sort of hypnotic conditioning by a substitute authority figure, a substitute parent figure. And this, this is known by you know, CIA brainwashers, car salesmen, Rushkoff explains how that works, and so on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I uh, but is it, you're talking about the, that, uh, Desmet, Matthias Desmet's book on, uh, yeah. right. Ma- uh, ma- mass, uh, mass psychosis or I was sorry, what, what was his title? Yeah. Um, I guess it was, no, it was mass psychosis or mass something. It was a psychiatric term. Right, right, right. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm spacing out on the exact word. I guess we're both getting a little older than we were in 2001. Uh, but anyway, Desmet's theory is that in modern society, uh, people have yeah. lost their sense of uh, the ultimate cosmic meaning of existence, and they live right. relatively meaningless lives. So yeah. that leaves them open to a kind of uh, manipulation by and, and not so much manipulation per se. It's actually the people sort of spontaneously generate this uh, kind of uh, mass uh, psychosis. And you know, he uses mm-hmm. the totalitarian movements as as an example. But the COVID reaction uh, also is sort of echoed that. Either way, they become willy nilly absorbed into the drama, and uh, see it all as quite real. Yeah, ma- mass um, formation is the word he used. Mass formation. Mass formation. Yeah. That's it. And see it as quite real and become part of the play. 
Whereas you and I are sitting up on the balcony somewhere and looking down on the stage and saying, oh, my God, look at all the people in the audience below us. And I say below us almost in a in a pejorative sense that they uh, did not have to be there, but there they are uh, lending support to the media interpretation of events of the day and uh, setting the stage for a whole series of of um, operations, including, uh, you know, uh, domestic terrorism, uh, uh, sex switching, uh, uh, COVID-19, climate change, mass shootings. I mean, these are all just going bang, 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 bang. And people don't seem to be able to catch their feet or catch their breath um, because these are coming at us so fast and so hard. So anyway, um, I consider myself, the bottom line, I consider myself to be a member of the audience and not a member of the play or a bit player. And I'm trying to get other people to wake up and say, wait a minute, you're in a play. Do you realize that? And well, but, no, but that, no, that makes you a player. That, you know, you're not just a, a passive spectator up at the top of the balcony, Key. You're actually oh, no, no. You're, you're participating. Script. Yeah, you're, you're standing up in the theater and uh, and yelling, yes. "Hey, this is a, this is just a play. People, wake up! And can't you see these people that just you know kill uh, killed thousands of people and blamed it on their enemies uh, are actually yeah. the bad guys here? Uh, maybe we should storm the stage and go after those people." Yes, really. I was thinking about storming the stage, and then I heard all these people in the audience say, ah, shut up. <laughs> Conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah, right. You oh, crazy man. loonies, go back to where you came from. <laughs> oh, you came from here. Well, so what? You're an idiot. Oh, boy. You know, this, this stage metaphor reminds me of the famous Frank Zappa quote, where he said that when it becomes too expensive for them to maintain the illusion of freedom, then they'll just you know yeah. rip down the curtain and and t- pull aside and throw out all of the stage scenery and stuff and and the, you'll see just the the brick wall you know at the back of, of what used to be the stage. Uh, in other words, the the illusion of freedom is kind of an expensive stage show. Yeah. We think we're living in a free democratic republic. It's really a brutally corrupt uh, quasi totalitarian oligarchical empire. And at yeah. some point, they're going to just stop pretending. And then, you know, no more, they're not going to tell us we're free anymore. Uh, they'll, they'll just uh, brutally push us around. And it seems like they're getting closer and closer to that. Well, I've been wondering, I have a question that maybe you might take a chance at answering. <clears throat> By the way, my voice is off today. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, if they decided to wind it down, let's say, maybe to even kill off the whole operation, at least for the time being. How would you know? We'll kill off which operation? The whole thing. I mean, all seven operations, you know, uh, global warming, COVID-19, all of this terrorism, this fake terrorism. What if they decided, you know what, this isn't working. I think we better just wind it down for now. How would you know they were doing that? Hmm. And would they want you to know that they were doing that? Well, I, I would think that we we might notice a, a significant downturn of uh, scary, scary stories in the media. Uh, that would be a sign. I think it. it would have to be kind of very slowly done, very slowly, just to kind of just get back into something, some mem- some semblance of normal life, as they call it. Um, so they'd have to unboil the frog. 
Yes, that's right. Getting the frog back into good shape, putting his spots back on and letting him go in a favorite pond. <laughs> um, I don't think that would happen, but, I mean, it could. Who knows? Hmm. And the other thing is um, wondering uh, whether, in fact, by exposing certain elements of these various operations, we are slowly letting a lar larger and larger percentage of the population know what's going on. In other words, we are being believed by a larger and larger, maybe only slowly growing, but larger and larger proportion of people who um, who understand uh, that things are really, really nasty, and yet um, there's just enough people listening to the, uh, or watching the news or reading the papers to um, to support the narrative and to give everyone else the idea that, yes, this is real, this is ongoing. It was one thing we were talking about once a while back. We did a, an interview once where I said, um, you know, the thing that gives the media their power, both the newsprint and the television, is, a, is the idea of simultaneity. In other words, when that broadcast is going on and when that newspaper comes out, Everybody who gets it, gets it. And they are aware peripherally of thousands or maybe millions of other people. They don't really know the how many people know what the circulation of your local paper is. Not many. Or, for that matter, the viewership of your local TV station. Not many. So they can imagine millions of people out there all believing the same thing. And that exerts a tremendous social pressure on them to believes just exactly what the paper said, just what the TV commentator said. And that kind of power is not something that we have on the Internet. Uh, the Internet experience is basically a lonely one. You're looking at somebody's website, and you may know intellectually that there's maybe you know 100,000 people listening, but it doesn't have the same impact because you're not used to giving it that kind of total... Um, awareness that uh, one imagines when reading the paper or watching the news. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like everybody knows that the Queen yeah, just died right. and, the, and the King took his place. The Queen of the UK just died. It's like, oh, we all know, everybody knows that. If you ran into somebody who didn't know that, it would seem strange, like they were Rip Van Winkle or the people of the cave. Um, but, right? yeah. but if you run into somebody who, for instance, doesn't know that masks, face masks don't work very well, if at all, that vaccines uh, have ups, uh, downsides to at least match their upsides, that 9-11 was a false flag, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, know, you can't really assume that everybody knows that stuff. It's obvious that they don't. No, no. That's a fact. Right. So, yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah, you're right. There's There's a huge difference between these kind of hypnotically programmed mass realities that everybody's expected to know, and then yeah. a lot of people you see, have... If you walk out in the street and someone says, did you hear about Queen Elizabeth? You say, what? And they tell <laughs> you, who? they say, holy shit. Yeah, Queen who? You, for a moment there, you feel like you're not part of society. Well, they, they'll, they'll think you're like an alien from outer space or yeah, somebody in a time travel. No. Yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> oh, my God, you better go back for reprogramming. It's not good. Right, right. But, but but lately, I think, you know, things have changed a little bit because in throughout a lot of this era of mass media, there was not that much besides the mass media uh, that could reach 
uh, large numbers of people. And now the Internet is reaching a lot of people, maybe not feeding them precisely the same stories. But if you add up all of the alternative approaches to things on the Internet, that's a lot of people seeing it. It's just that we're all seeing different stuff. And I think the authorities are freaking out because not everybody is seeing the same stuff. Like, So everybody knows that the Queen died, but a lot of those people that know that the Queen died you know, have heard that David Icke thinks that she's a reptile from outer space. And a few of them, you know, <laughs> a few of them might actually believe that, but quite a few Maybe more. Maybe he's right. Who knows? You right. Know. And, and many more would say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a darn good metaphor. <laughs> yes. A blood drinking, you know, flesh, human flesh eating lizard from outer space. Yeah. I mean, it may not be literally true, but it's a darn good metaphor. And, and, and so they're As all. a metaphor, it kind of works, doesn't it? It's a great metaphor. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are all kinds of people now with all kinds of, Sort of anti-hegemonic uh, perspectives uh, floating around well, out let's there. Let's take a let's take a UFO over to the headquarters of the General Operations Director or the GOD. Uh, perhaps <laughs> his name is Rothschild. I don't know. But um, we go to that headquarters and we look into his mind and we discover that, in fact, being a true psychopath, if he is, then he likes torturing people, but he wants to see them. He wants to see them suffer. What's the fun of torturing someone if they refuse to suffer? There's a great Monty Python skit about a guy who who likes being tortured, and every time his torture stops lashing him, he says, oh, you're no fun. (laughs) Right. That that reminds me of of Jack Nicholson's scene as the uh, masochist in the dentist's office in Little Shop of Horrors. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So the point is that they have to see some suffering. Where do we? Where do they see the suffering? Well, they see the suffering here among the audience, you and me and the other people who know what's actually going on. We are actually suffering. We're dismayed that this is going on. We're very unhappy. We're trying to make the best of it, but really, we are a very unhappy lot of people. And the people who are, of course, threatened by all of this are unhappy in a very different way. But... Um, the point is that if you have a certain percentage of people who know what's going on and another percentage of people who don't know what's going on, uh, if you add the two together, you get the population of the U.S., let's say. So as the proportion slowly shifts, they can allow a certain speed of that shift. They can allow a certain number more people becoming aware of what's going on because they get off on that. And secondly, they maintain the semblance of a real audience, of a huge audience, maintaining that that um, uh, semblance of simultaneity or whatever you want to call it. Um, they uh, will slowly move that percentage right over to zero. <laughs> Finally, everybody knows what's going on, but by then, of course, just about everything the deep state wants is going to be in place, and everyone will know they're fucked. I mean, there's, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Everyone will know mm. they're screwed. Yeah, yeah, put a nickel and, in the switch. Um, there's absolutely nothing they can do about it. They're like paralyzed. It's perfect, you see, from the point of view of the deep state. At no point did there ever have to be a rebellion or, a, or some kind of mass movement against. Because it was so slow. Well, you know, once they get their techno dictatorship in place, 
at that point, they're not going to have to care what anybody knows because there'll be nothing people can do about it. And I think they're they're imagining that they're getting pretty close to that already. Um, I hope that's not Quite true. Possibly. Right. And it, but it does seem because to me, though, as the as when new legislation is framed and it's put in a way that makes it obvious, even to a person with an IQ under fifty, that something rather mean is coming around the bend. Um, they uh, they will react, but it won't be it will be too weak. It'll won't really mean anything. For one thing, they'll be shut up at the moment they start to speak. Well, you know, just I, I, as we are now in some cases. I, but I don't think we're quite at that point where they don't care whether we know the truth or not. I think actually they're pushing back pretty hard against people learning the truth. Uh, that you know, Cass Sunstein's efforts with his you know anti-conspiracy theory oh, yes, crusade. Well, I could be cynical and say, well, you have to you have to make the effort or visibly make the effort, but won't <laughs> right. get too suspicious. Well, they look like they're you working know, pretty hard. I mean, they you know, they, but they, you, Kevin, Kevin uh, Barrett, are a real danger, and of course that gives you a certain um, credibility, a certain. Um, um, I say reinforcement that yes, I am doing good work and so forth, but it could be all just a ruse. And uh, we're like me, I've never been interfered with, and I keep wondering why. And then I think, well, I'm A, I'm not that important, but B, um, maybe they sort of like me doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say this, but somehow it's playing into their hands. I guess that's all I can say, really. Somehow yeah. it plays their hands. Well, I mean, they, you know, they could tolerate us as long as we haven't yet really posed a threat by winning over a critical mass of the people who matter to our way of seeing Yeah, that's things. what it comes down to, yes. Yeah. That's right. And, and I, think they're, they're, I think they are working fairly hard to try to stop us from doing that. Uh, for instance, this Internet censorship regime that's come in over the past 10 years, uh, especially yes. the last five, six years, is just right. really, it would have been unimaginable 10 or 15 years ago. You know, back then it was just, oh, yeah. right, it, our, everybody's understanding of the way the Internet, at least in America, worked was yeah. that, that they weren't allowed to favor or disfavor anybody on a platform. So YouTube, in the understanding that prevailed up until like 2015 or thereafter, was assumed right. that in order to stay in business, uh, they, under the Communications Decency Act, YouTube could not... Uh, shadow ban you by making it hard for people to view your YouTube video. In other words, they couldn't treat your YouTube video any differently from anybody else's. They could do nothing whatsoever to encourage some videos, discourage others, promote some, and suppress others uh, because then they would be a publisher rather than a platform, and that would mean that they would be 100% liable for anything bad that happened on their platform because they published it and they endorsed it and it was really their message that went out. And and so they couldn't do that. And so we just assumed that all platforms had to be content neutral. And everybody believed this. The Electronic Freedom Foundation, uh, you know, the, the, everybody who was involved, the Internet uh, technicians, it was just assumed that that was the case. And then a right. propaganda effort 
by Sunstein and his friends started really kicking in sort of about 2014, 2015, saying, we have to rethink this. These conspiracy theories are a danger. We're going to, you know, we have the Internet. Oh, now starting today, says this New York Times op-ed, uh, the Internet actually is not content neutral, and it never was. And, you know, Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly they were allowed to start censoring us and then promoting whatever they wanted to promote. And they could still be platforms. So how did that happen? It, well, did, they had to really be worried about so-called conspiracy theorists to have to do that. And they've done all mm-hmm. kinds of other stuff to try to limit our that influence. That is pretty draconian, isn't it? Yeah, that was a huge change. I mean, that was you know, that was almost like going from having a First Amendment to not having a First Amendment. It was, it was like that equivalent on the Internet. It was a crazy right. change, and nobody even seems to realize it happened. It's, it's just it's mm-hmm. been memory-holed. So, it, yeah, that, I think they care and they, they do worry. Uh, and, uh, they're, you know, and I think they're, they're sort of from their perspective, it's like herding cats. Like first they yeah. have, they have 9-11. And so they easily herd all of the, you know, the, 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 the green cats or whatever, the, the, let's call them the red cats, the Republicans. They herd all the Republican red cats easily because the red cats drool and salivate on command when you say, oh, we've been attacked. We have to go to war. But the blue cats, yeah. the Democrat liberal peacenik cats at that point are yeah. a little suspicious. And then along come people like us, you and me, uh, herding the blue cats saying, hey, blue cats, uh, look at what these guys did. And, and so the blue cats are now getting unruly. And so now they have to put in Obama, who seems to be a, a blue cat himself, to get all the blue cats back in line. But now it's the yeah. red cats who start saying, "Oh, Obama was born somewhere else, and you know he's and he's the, you know this and that." And now that's the red cats who are out of control. And now with Trump, it's really the red cats that are out of control, and the blue cats yeah. are being successfully herded. But the 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 herders and controllers are working really, really hard to herd these cats, and you know they're yeah. having some success and some failure. Hmm. And it's the red cats that are really out of control. I've been going to Republican Party meetings, and they're very open to this kind of stuff. And this is the exact opposite of what happened in 2006. By the way, I guess you're aware of a newspaper called the OPEC Times, or the Epoch Times. Oh, yeah, that's that's the... uh, uh, Have you noticed the change in that paper over the last five years? They used to be pretty timid about anything that was even slightly like a conspiracy theory. But now... um, Oh, they're right out there with the uh, with the leaders uh, of the pack. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the Falun Falun Gong uh, cult, as I recall. And they anything that you you read in, in uh, any of the popular websites, whether it's Global Research or Ron Hans or whoever, um, you're seeing the same articles of the same kind of articles appearing in the Epoch Times as uh, basically editorial content. Well, a comment. So slight and, differences, um, though. Ron Unz is big. He's the hard thing he's pushing hardest is the evidence that neocon Americans attacked China with biological weapons, and that's where COVID came from. Whereas the Epoch Times is doing yeah. the blame oh, well, China. I, could be. I, I don't even worry about differences like that because, for one thing, um, my uh, particular simplifying assumption is that. Um, COVID-19 is nothing more than seasonal flu. It's just redescribed. That's all you have to do. And then you make up this big story about Wuhan and Alberta's scientists and American scientists doing this, doing that, um, putting a, you know, a gain of function into their viruses and so forth. I mean, 
it can be it can be just a story with a lot of elaborate details going on and getting people discussing things that never actually happened um that's fine with me as as an operation that i see no reason why that wouldn't work well wait, wait wait a minute though what we had you know attempts at starting a sort of a you know a scare pandemic about you know bird flu and pig flu and this flu and that flu and uh, Ebola. And uh, there's such a long list of these disease scares that didn't take that I can't even remember them all. But COVID, what COVID took, and honestly, I would disagree with you. And I I think that the reason that COVID took is that it really is a bioweapon, an engineered virus that is designed to do exactly what it did, which is kill an average of, yeah, it's not, probably about 0.3% uh, or, you know, one in you know, 300 to 400 people, maybe one in 200 Americans because we're so uh, fat, out of shape, and old. And it was designed to do as that. Long, as, you, as long as you can distinguish between the deaths due to the vaccine and the deaths due to COVID-19, you might have a case, yeah. Right. And, and there is, yeah, there's plenty of, you know, there are questions about death rates in 2020, 2021, 2022 uh, that seem to suggest that there's more than just the COVID virus that's going on, and perhaps these vaccines are killing quite a few people too. But I oh yeah yeah but but I I, I think that you know well I mean I've had well I'm waiting for the big cull to happen. So far I don't see it. The big cull. Cull C U L L. Right. Getting rid of half the inhabitants of this planet. The useless eaters, as uh, Yuval Harari would call them. Pardon me. Uh, getting rid of the useless eaters, as people like Yuval Harari uh, would say. Yes, for example. Um, yes, basically. Um, but I expect it to happen rather quickly and uh, suddenly, and probably to be blamed on either Russia or China. It's a new virus altogether, uh, and it's just killing everybody. Half of every family back in the way days of the Spanish flu Half of every American family went missing, uh, so to speak. That's an exaggeration, but a lot of people died from the Spanish flu. And I expect a lot of people to start dying in large numbers down the road when the uh, vaccines are are triggered, basically, when they become active. Well, you you have to go back 650 years to the plague to get to where half of the population got wiped out all at once. But, but yeah, I, I think you're, you know, I'll meet you halfway on your claim that COVID isn't much more than seasonal flu. Personally, I think it's it's probably like three times to three to six times worse than seasonal flu. But let's just say it's it depends which season, of course. But in any yeah, case, it's, yeah, it's it's obviously not like the plague. It's not going to kill off half the population anytime soon. However, no. here's my my hypothesis. Here is I think Ron Nunes is right. I think this was a neocon attack on China and Iran. It was designed to go after their economies and to force them into very expensive containment measures, which in the case of China would slow their economic growth long term. And I think they didn't really even care that it escaped a containment and affected the whole world because it's actually helping them by uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, life expectancy has dropped from 79 to 76 uh, since COVID. And COVID is probably responsible, I think, for at least two thirds of that. Uh, and oh, yes. and so uh, I think that w- what's what's happening here is that we're entering a new era of pervasive biological warfare, and I think the military developed both COVID 
and the mRNA vaccines, and that these vaccines... Well, they would be the logical ones. Right. You, you, you don't do a bioweapon without an antidote or especially, you know, vaccine. And and so... You don't give a contract to Podunk University to develop a bioweapon. Right. So, so they unleashed a relatively tame bioweapon, a pretty uneventful bioweapon, and yes. it's a test case. And so they're testing these mRNA vaccines as a containment measure. Now, mRNA vaccines yes. are such that you can tweak them very, very quickly to match whatever new virus or variant is out there, as we're seeing now with these new vaccines for Omicron. And so when they escalate by unleashing a virus that actually kills you know, 1% or 5% or 10% or, God forbid, 50% of, the, of its uh, victims, then if once they have their mRNA technology down and they can whip that yeah. out and, and say, line up and get vaxxed ASAP, people, or you'll die, at that point they'll get the result that they want because everybody in China will die or Russia or whatever, Iran, whatever they're targeting, and they'll get the yeah. vaccines into the people who rush to get vaccinated first, which is exactly the people they want to keep alive. Yes, right. The sheep. Yeah, I, I, I get that, too, that that is part of the plan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. But at the same time, um, I'm waiting. I, I know it's sort of morally wrong of me to wait with impatience for large numbers of people to die. <laughs> but <laughs> that's the position I find myself in as I grow impatient. I want to see this thing play out. I want to see what's going to happen before I die. I so mean, you, you want to live long enough to see everybody else die. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully not before everyone else does. But uh, just so I can see, well, okay, I I live to see the end times. My goodness, what a, <laughs> there you go. what a we, wonderful experience that was. Well, we do sort of have front row seats at the apocalypse here, don't we? It's, uh, yes, this is apocalyptic air about this planet right now. Yeah. And, uh, so in my little newsletter, I'm now starting to invent new operations for them as a way, possibly, of preempting such an operation. Like, for example, an invasion from outer space, things like that. We know this is uh, quite unlikely, but at the same time, it's so easy to do. It must be terribly tempting. Faking an invasion from outer space? Well, they're certainly pushing ahead their UFO disclosure stuff in the mainstream media. The New York Times You know, is... that looks to me like a prep, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like they're getting people ready to accept the idea that UFOs are real, and they could actually be under the control of aliens from outer space, and they have a very uh, dark uh, future for humanity in mind. So... <clears throat> How do you fake a, a, I don't want to get into it too much, but you can, it's easy to fake a, an invasion because you can also, there's literally, um, up, I think over a thousand satellites up there right now, most of them decommissioned, not used anymore, uh, outlived their usefulness, and they can be sent back into Earth with a little impulse jet, and they go streaking through the atmosphere, you can send them down in groups, and you say, oh, here's the invasion fleet coming, and then the most fun of all is when we now cut to the White House office of the President of the United States to give a message for all Americans. And there's the President of the United States, whoever it happens to be, and sitting beside him is <laughs> the most fun of all. It's an actual alien. Saying, act, act, act. 
you could dress, you know, Hollywood can do that sort of thing so easily. Well, they have a million times, and so they've prepared us for it, just well, like yes, they prepared exactly. us for 9 11 so, with disaster movies. So, so this alien speaks through some kind of a telepathic translator, and it tells, tells the American people, he says, uh, the, the presidency has now been ended, and there is now a world government, and your new governor on our behalf is Mr. Carl Schwab. And, and then if the president's a good guy, he says, quick, somebody, oh, yeah. call, somebody call Slim Whitman. Um, yes. Yeah. Did you see Mars Attacks? Pardon me? Did you see the movie Mars Attacks? Oh, Mars? No, no. Mars Attacks. It's, it's pretty funny. You might, you might enjoy that. But anyway, these, I'm making oblique references to that movie. Um, but, oh, I see. Yeah. What is, what's it called again? I, uh, I haven't Mar, heard it. Mars Attacks. It's it's a uh, oh yeah Mars a, attack a parody yeah, someone else yeah parody of the UFO yeah, invasion yeah. yeah well that would be okay <laughs> it's, yeah it's so there's other things too um, yeah. my next little piece will be on power failures and the expected number of deaths after one week two weeks three weeks and a month of no power so yeah what's do you your think guess is, at the death rate is, is, is Europe, the power is off for one whole month so do you think Europe's uh, crashing would you say a half. I don't know. I think at least a half. You're the mathematician here. Well, I need to know some facts before I could do any uh, deductions. But, um, for example, take a modern high-rise building, uh, apartment building, 30 stories high. Uh, How many old people live in that building? Well, maybe a quarter, maybe a half. I don't know. But um, they would not be able to go to the store for ever so long. They would not be able to climb the stairs without getting a heart attack. Um, you want to go to the store, the store is closed. You want police services, the police aren't serving. They don't have any radios. The power's off. Everything's off. Some places have emergency generators. How long are they going to last? There are people going around raiding houses for food um, and, uh, you know, killing anyone who gets in their way. And then after a while, they run out of gas because there's no gas stations running. I mean, it's just, you can watch almost in your mind the whole thing just slowly running down until almost no one is left. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a totally bleak landscape. And that's one month. One week, not so bad. That's all I can say. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's so kind a power of a bleak... is bad, especially in the winter, okay? No heat. Think Ukraine, think Russia for that matter, if they had one. Wherever it occurs, it's bad news. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that's right. Um, you so know, I think about things like that. It's very crude, but it's very effective if you want to get rid of a lot of people fairly quickly. Well, you know, Douglas Rushkoff's new book is apparently about billionaires who are building escape hatches for the apocalypse. Uh, they're going to fly oh, yes. their computer uh, I don't jets. know much about that. Did you read that book? Uh, I haven't read it yet. I heard him uh, interviewed on public radio. I, normally public radio is torture to me, but every once in a while there's something great, and there was a great interview with, with Rushkoff, who's been on this show many times, by the way. Hopefully I'll get him back. Oh, yes. His new book is about the billionaires who are uh, flying off to New Zealand and building these gigantic underground complexes with huge Olympic-sized swimming pools, uh, recreational facilities, bo- a bowling alley, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where it, they're it planning sunlight, right? <laughs> I guess, yeah, uh, and, and something like that, right? And, and apparently, he notices that these plans are incredibly unrealistic. You know, the billionaires are going to have to somehow go up to the surface to change the HEPA filters every 
so often and who, where are they going to get the filters? The hardware store probably won't still be running and so on and so forth. So for him, it's all a big escapist fantasy, uh, not a viable plan for survival. There may surviving. be a huge infrastructure that has to be maintained just to keep those places running, right? Pretty much, yeah. So it looks like the billionaires, uh, and then their, their biggest worry is how do they keep their security guys under control because they're, they're hiring these ex-Navy SEALs, and they're, yeah. what they see happening is that oh, they're, you know, everything fails and the Navy SEALs end up eating them. <laughs> or at least yeah. rebelling against them. Uh, so anyway, it's yeah, apocalyptic speculation. It's uh, it's grim, it's foreboding, but uh, it's it's all too real. Well, thank you so much, uh, AK Key, or otherwise known as Halil Dudney. It's always great touching bases with you, uh, even if it got a little grim there at the end. Uh, so keep up the great work. God bless, and we'll talk again. I'll send that uh, link to you. Uh, Momentarily. Okay, and we'll, we'll try to post the link at the radio blog by way of truthjihad.com. Just click it on the radio now. schedule yeah. link. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Back in a few moments with Matt Errett of Canadian Patriot talking about King Charles and the Great Reset. Stick around for